Hey everyone, Craig Baird here. Before I begin today's story, I want to take a moment and ask that you check me out on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. There are several tiers with great benefits, from ad-free content to t-shirts and other cool stuff. And I have plenty of wonderful merch in my store, and the link is in my show notes. As well, if you're a fan of Canadian history, make sure you check out all of my shows, from John to Justin, Canadian History X, Canada, A Yearly Journey, and Pucks and Cups, along with Canada's Great War. And don't forget, you can also donate directly to the show at www.canadaehx.com. Just click Donate. It helps keep this show going. Okay, on with the show. Before I get to the episode, I want to mention that in March, I'm hitting three years since I started podcasting full-time. And I want to do a Q&A episode, so I'll answer questions about Canadian history, about myself... Just email craig at canadaehx.com. I'm Craig Baird, and this is Canada, A Yearly Journey. I should say sorry that I haven't had an episode the past couple weeks. I've been busy putting together episodes for my main podcast, Canadian History X. Remember, that's EHX. So it kind of delayed things with this one. But we're back, and we're looking at the year 1895. Con Smythe was born in Toronto on February 1st to English immigrants, being the second of the couple's two children. The family was poor and would have to move several times during his early life, with the quality of their home depending on how much his father was making at the time. Eventually, his parents would separate and his father would remarry in 1913. Smythe would attend high school at Upper Canada College, but disliked it. It was at his next school, Jarvis Collegiate Institute, that he began to show his athletic abilities, playing rugby, basketball, and hockey, and playing on the city championship teams in hockey and basketball. In 1916, he would meet his future wife, Irene Sands, while he was playing in a football game. At the age of 17, Smythe left home to homestead on 150 acres near Cochrane, Ontario. He built a home, only to have it destroyed by fire the next year, So he left and went to the University of Toronto where he played hockey and captained the school's hockey team to the finals in the 1914 Ontario Hockey Association Championship. At the outbreak of the First World War, Smythe would enlist with eight of his teammates. Smythe would earn the rank of lieutenant and was sent over to France with his unit in February of 1916. On October 12th, his unit, the 40th Battery, would be hit by shelling killing both the major and sergeant major of the unit, making Smythe the commanding officer. For the next two months, his unit fought in the trenches at the Somme without relief. In February 1917, Smythe earned the military cross for running into a fight as Germans were throwing grenades and killing three Germans himself and saving several wounded Canadian soldiers. In July 1917, he transferred to the Royal Flying Corps and was shot down by the Germans on October 14, 1917. He spent the remaining part of the war, despite two escape attempts, in a POW camp. In describing his life at the camp, he would say, We played so damn much bridge that I never played the game again. Upon returning to Toronto, Smythe would start a sand and gravel business that he would own for the next four decades. During that same time, he began coaching the University of Toronto's varsity team, and it was through that he became involved in the NHL. In 1926, Charles Adams, the owner of the Boston Bruins, recommended Smythe to John S. Hammond as the general manager and coach for the new team entering the NHL, the New York Rangers. Smythe put together a team but was fired just before the Rangers played their first game. Smythe would return to Toronto, and two years after he was fired from the Rangers, the team won the Stanley Cup, largely thanks to the team Smythe assembled. 
1927, Smythe was given the opportunity to purchase the Toronto St. Pat's for $160,000. Smythe quickly put together a syndicate and invested $10,000 of his own money, finally purchasing the team on Valentine's Day of that year. The first thing he did was change the team's name to the Toronto Maple Leafs. Smythe made himself the general manager and changed the team's colours from green and white to white and blue to represent the Canadian skies and snow, but also it was the colours of his gravel business. In 1929, just as the Great Depression was starting, Smythe decided the team needed a new arena that could seat more people than their current arena. He would raise the money for the construction, which would cost $1 million, and work began on June 1, 1931. Within five months, the new arena was built and was called Maple Leaf Gardens, which would become one of the most important and celebrated arenas in the NHL. Fergus, tell us about the hockey. That con Smythe, he's going to call the team the Maple Leafs. The Maple Leafs? Says here he's going to build a new arena, too. Hope he comes up with a better name for it. <laughs> con, I told you, the bank can't find that kind of money to build an arena in this depression. Oh, but Sir John, listen, we have a deal with the workers. Part of their pay in shares. Part of their pay in shares? Yes, sir. In that case, the bank will pick up the rest. She's going up good, Patty. You're lucky you got a job. Yes, we are. I'll be up inside of six months. What's the rush? We're all shareholders. She opened, ching, ching, we make a money. And open she did to thousands of glorious days and nights. The judgment of the people. Our father. Right And then one night, she stepped down. In 1931 32, Smythe fired Art Duncan as coach and hired Dick Irvin, who then led the team to its first Stanley Cup as the Maple Leafs. In 1940, he decided it was time for a new coach and Hap Day was hired, while Irvin would be hired by the Canadians. Day would lead the Maple Leafs to the Stanley Cup in 1942 and 1945, and from 1947 to 1949. When the Second World War began, Smythe would go on to serve in the Canadian Army again, this time as a captain. He would eventually be sent to England to guard a depot and was badly wounded by a German bombing attack, leading him to suffer with a limp and bowel and urinary tract problems for the rest of his life. Eventually, Smythe would step down as governor of the team, a position he held since 1927 on February 5, 1962. Smythe would sell his shares in Maple Leaf Gardens in 1966 and would resign from the board of directors after Muhammad Ali's boxing match was held at the Gardens. Smythe disliked Ali because he refused to fight in the Vietnam War. Smythe would write later, The Gardens was founded by men, sportsmen who fought for their country. It is no place for those who want to evade conscription in their country. The Gardens was built for many things but not for picking up things that no one else wanted. Smythe would die in 1978 from a heart attack. Mr. Smythe, I understand there's no party. How come the Leafs today are such cheapskates? Well, I'll tell you. You got one guy eats everything, there's nothing left for anybody else. <laughs> Who's doing all the eating these days? Never mind, you take a guess. <laughs> Mr. Smythe, how much did the Leafs cost you? They cost the, the company $165,000. Sounds like a good buy today. Wasn't bad buy, but and when we only drew 115000 the first year, didn't look so good. So you were a gambling man? Well, I'd gamble on you. anything that you had anything to do with. <laughs> <laughs> How much did Babe Pratt cost you? Babe Pratt, whatever he cost, we got the biggest bargain in our lives. Mr. Smythe, did you get a particular delight taking players away from the Rangers? 
No, but I got particular that I'd sell them some that weren't worth the money. <laughs> In 1965, the Conn Smythe Trophy was created by the NHL, given to the MVP of the playoffs. In 1974, the Smythe division was named for him and would remain in his name until 1992. In 1998, Smythe was inducted into the Ontario Sports Hall of Fame and was inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame in 1958. I'm doing an entire episode on Conn Smythe on my podcast, Pucks and Cups. That episode will be released on June 26th. On February 15th, Earl Thompson was born in Birch Hills in what would one day be Saskatchewan. He would move to California at the age of eight because the warm weather was better for his mother's health. In 1916, he joined the Royal Air Force, serving in the First World War. In 1920, he would go on to the Olympics in Antwerp, Belgium, hoping to represent the United States. But he was told he had to represent Canada. He would set a new world record in the 110-meter hurdles, a record that stood until 1931, and he was the first Olympic gold medalist in the 110-meter hurdles from outside the United States. He would go on to become the United States Naval Academy track coach for 36 years. In 1955, he was one of the first inductees to the Canada Sports Hall of Fame, and he would pass away in 1971. In March, Maria Grant would be the first woman to be elected to any sort of political office. Grant had been born in Quebec City and was active in the Women's Christian Temperance Union. In 1894, she founded the Victoria Local Council of Women, which was the first organization to endorse women's suffrage. This year, Grant was elected to the Victoria School Board, which she would serve for six years. The future King George V would meet her when she would present it to the king as the only woman school trustee in Canada. On March 2nd, Theodore Davy, who had been the Premier of British Columbia since 1892, would resign as Premier so he could become the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of British Columbia. Two days later, on March 4th, John Herbert Turner would become the 11th Premier of British Columbia. He had moved to Victoria in 1862 and founded Turner, Beaton & Company, a canning insurance and importing company. From 1876 to 1881, he would serve as the mayor of Victoria and was first elected to the legislature in 1886. He would serve as the Minister of Finance from 1887 to 1895, and his time as Premier would run until 1898. From 1901 to 1915, he would represent British Columbia in England. On March 9th, the Montreal Hockey Club would win their second Stanley Cup by defeating Queen's University 5-1 at the Victoria Rink in Montreal. On March 23rd, John Cartwright was born in Toronto. He would earn a law degree from Osgoode Hall Law School in 1912 and in 1914 would enlist in the Canadian Expeditionary Force, serving in the First World War. He was wounded twice and earned the Military Cross. Upon his return, he would go back to practicing law and would be appointed to the Supreme Court of Canada on December 22, 1949. In 1967, he was named the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, serving until March 23, 1970 and he would pass away nine years later in 1979. On April 4th, Malcolm Alexander McLean would pass away at the age of 50. He had been born in Scotland and came to Canada in the 1860s, operating a store in Oshawa, Ontario. He would relocate to Winnipeg in 1878 and move to Granville, British Columbia in 1885, which would become Vancouver. On May 3rd, 1886, he would be elected as the first mayor of Vancouver by less than honest means, it seems. He won the election by 17 votes, and it's claimed by some that 100 votes were cast illegally, something that was later confirmed by using the names of hotel guests. The Great Vancouver Fire of 1886 made everyone forget about the scandal, and as Mayor McLean would convince the Governor-General to give the area that would become Stanley Park to the city. 
1886, he ran on a platform of anti-Chinese sentiment and was re-elected, and he would serve until 1887. On May 8, 1895, the first motion for women's suffrage is presented in Parliament by Nicholas Flood Davin. The motion called for enfranchisement for women who met property requirements, but did not include anything for women to run for political office. The Montreal Gazette reported, He mentioned Queen Victoria, Queen Elizabeth, Mary Queen of Scots, and other women famous in history in proof of feminine political ability and reviewed the progress the question had made in the British House of Commons. While Wilfrid Laurier, who would become Prime Minister the next year, was not against suffrage, he did not feel it was a federal cause. He would put in an amendment that stated that the question of women's suffrage is one which, like other questions concerning the suffrage, more properly belongs to provincial jurisdiction. One MP, simply named Craig, stated that he wanted no politicians around his house and that it would take away from a woman's charm if she was allowed to mix into politics. The opponents to the motion stated that the proper sphere for a woman is in the home, and it was defeated 105 votes to 47. On May 27th, Douglas Campbell was born in Portage la Prairie. Working as a farmer and school teacher in his adult life, he would be elected to the Manitoba legislature in 1922, winning by 500 votes. In 1936, he would become the Minister of Agriculture, and in 1944 was the Minister of the Manitoba Power Commission, which oversaw the complete electrification of the rural areas of the province and created Manitoba Hydro. In 1948, Campbell was elected as the 13th Premier of Manitoba, serving for the next 10 years in that position, and he would spend four years as the leader of the opposition before retiring from politics. In 1972, he was awarded the Order of Canada, and he passed away at the age of 99 in 1995. On July 7th, Thane Campbell was born in Summerside, Prince Edward Island, and would become a lawyer in the province until he ran for the provincial legislature in 1930, winning and serving until 1943. During that time, he would become the 19th Premier of Prince Edward Island in 1936, serving until 1943. As Premier, he would organize a provincial police force, establish the first national park in the province, and committed his province to the war effort. He was also known to be an excellent curler and would be inducted in the Prince Edward Island Curling Hall of Fame and Museum and into the Canadian Curling Hall of Fame. In 1973, he was awarded the Order of Canada and he passed away at the age of 83 in 1978. On September 7th, Pete Parker was born and would go on to become the world's first complete play-by-play radio broadcaster of a hockey game. The broadcast was carried out at CKCK in Regina for a game between the Regina Capitals and the Edmonton Eskimos. The broadcast predated the March 22, 1923 broadcast by Foster Hewitt by one week. Born on September 18th in Ontario, John Diefenbaker would move with his family to the Northwest Territories and would one day be Saskatchewan in 1903. Living near Borden, the family then moved to Saskatoon in 1910, and Diefenbaker developed such an interest in politics as a young man that when he was eight, his mother told him he would be Prime Minister one day. In 1916, Diefenbaker would enlist with the Canadian Expeditionary Force, but he was sent home in 1917. Diefenbaker said he was hit with a shovel, and that resulted in being sent home and not serving overseas. He would then go to the University of Saskatchewan and earned his law degree in 1919. He would open a small practice in Waukesha, Saskatchewan. In 1920, he was elected to the village council, serving a three-year term and starting his political career. In 1924, he moved to Prince Albert and would run in the federal election as a conservative, finishing in third. In 1929, he ran the provincial election for Saskatchewan, but he was defeated. Diefenbaker would continue to run his practice in Prince Albert and ran for mayor of the city in 1933, losing by only 48 votes. 
Stephen Baker would mostly focus on his law career and family through the 1930s, but in 1940, he would run in the federal election and would finally win a seat in the House of Commons. In 1942, Diefenbaker would stand for leadership of the Conservative Party, but he did not win. Diefenbaker would again pursue leadership in 1948, this time losing to George Drew. Through the next several years, the Liberal Party would try and dislodge Diefenbaker from his riding in Prince Albert. While serving in the House of Commons, he would continue to practice law, but he would sadly lose his wife Edna in 1951 to leukemia. He remarried Olive Palmer in 1953. In 1956, Drew would resign as leader and Diefenbaker would finally be elected leader, becoming the leader of the official opposition. In 1957, he would lead his party to 112 seats to the Liberals' 105 and now found himself as the Prime Minister of Canada. Diefenbaker would get to work putting together a cabinet, appointing Ellen Fairclough as the Secretary of State for Canada, making her the first woman to be appointed to a cabinet position, and Michael Starr as Minister of Labour, making him the first Ukrainian-Canadian to serve in cabinet. In 1958, Diefenbaker would call an election and would lead his party to a massive majority, winning 208 seats to the Liberals' 48, which is still the largest majority based on the percentage of seats in Canadian parliamentary history. Unemployment was also an issue to half a million Canadian voters. Mr. Diefenbaker aired his views at a rally on Montreal's Craig Street Armouries. I know what unemployment is. They, don't, they can't tell me about that. I say to those that are out of work that we've acted, we've done that which the United States is now commencing to do. I ask the vast this, as long as I am Prime Minister of this country, no man or woman is going to be allowed to suffer deficit or no deficit. <laughs> uh, Mr. Pickerscale said the other day, I suppose our defeat did us no harm because the Liberal Party had run out of ideas. Well, ladies and gentlemen, they ran out of ideas on June the 10th, and if they've made such a tremendous improvement as is apparent since then in those few months, what will they do if we give them four or five years of opposition further in order to improve? As Prime Minister, John Diefenbaker would also appoint the first Indigenous person to the Senate of Canada and grant the right to vote to Indigenous and Inuit people. He also had a strong stance against apartheid, but is also remembered for the 1959 cancellation of the Avro Aero Project. I did an entire episode on that on my podcast, Canadian History X. His government will also pass the Canadian Bill of Rights while he was Prime Minister. Unfortunately for Diefenbaker, the Conservatives would begin to fracture, and in 1963, he would lose the federal election to Lester B. Pearson and the Liberals. In 1967, a leadership convention was held, and he was forced out as leader of the party. Nonetheless, he would continue to serve in the House of Commons until August 16, 1979, the year of his death. In all, he had served from 1940 to 1979, one of the longest uninterrupted periods in Canadian political history. If only Oliver here. She was with me through the years. No one will ever be able to adequately express my debt to her. 
What more can you say? The chief is back in the government 16 years after he was the last conservative prime minister of Canada. There are a number of arguments against an 83-year-old man running for public office, but the voters in Prince Albert obviously discarded that logic yesterday and gave the chief one last chance to sit in Parliament. Stan Hobdebo, the NDP candidate who ran second to Deep in the Prince Albert riding, expressed those feelings well when he visited the PC headquarters to congratulate the winner. Mr. Diefenbaker is a formidable opponent. Uh, I'm sure we're going to hear much from him in the next few years. And I congratulate him on his victory and hope that he will have a good uh, session at Parliament. Thank you very much. But the last word last night had to go to the chief when he thanked his supporters in PA and across the country for their love and support in this, his last election. In all my years, in public life, and I saw the mountain peaks, and I saw the valleys of defeat, and you've never either in victory or defeat seen me in a state of of exhilaration or despondency. If it wasn't for you, I wouldn't be here. I encourage you to listen to my episode on Diefenbaker on my other podcast, From John to Justin. On September 4th, Antoine Plamondon would pass away at the age of 91. He had been born in Quebec and by 22 had traveled to Paris to study art. He would return to Canada in 1830 and began painting portraits of living subjects along with religious paintings for churches. For the rest of his life, he would be one of Canada's most noble artists, painting many religious paintings and copies of the old masters. His self-portrait in 1882 is considered his last work. He would become a member of the Royal Canadian Academy of Arts and was noble for pushing for the rights of Indigenous people. On September 20th, Leslie Frost was born in Aurelia, Ontario. He would go on to attend law school and serve in the First World War, rising to the rank of captain. In 1921, he was called to the bar and would practice law in the province for several years. In 1937, he was elected to the Ontario Legislature and would become the Premier of Ontario in 1949, serving until 1961. During that time, he led Ontario through an economic boom, helping to lead the Ontario Conservatives to three majority victories in 1951, 1955 and 1959. His government would expand the role of government, expanding on schools, highways and hospitals, and he would implement the province's first sales tax and introduce health insurance prior to universal health care. Several investments are made during his time as Premier as well, and the education budget would increase from $13 million to $250 million over the decade. His government also gave voting rights to the Indigenous and updated the Ontario Human Rights Code. He would resign as Premier in 1961, and in 1969 was awarded the Order of Canada and he'd pass away on May 4, 1973, at the age of 77. In 1895, the Indian Act would ban the Jingle Dance, which was a healing dance for the Anishinaabe. The Sun Dance would also be banned under the Indian Act in 1895, but the ban was often ignored. William Lyon Mackenzie King would attend the University of Toronto, along with Arthur Meehan, graduating in 1895. At the University of Toronto, he would initiate a student strike in 1895 and worked closely with Vice-Chancellor William Malock behind the scenes. And while the strike failed to meet the objectives of King, which was to get William Dale a proper professor his job back, he did earn political points with Malock, who would hire him in only a few years' time. 
And lastly, in 1895, Francis Valentine Cuthbert Shortish shot several employees at the Montreal Cotton Factory. He had pleaded insanity, which, which was backed by two psychiatrists. He would be convicted and sentenced to hang on January 3, 1896. A debate over the matter in the public began and the Canadian cabinet was split on whether or not to overturn the death sentence. It fell to the Governor-General to decide. As he was against capital punishment, he commuted the sentence to life in prison. I hope you enjoyed that episode and my look at 1895. Next week, we're looking at 1896. If this is your first time listening and you like what you heard, please take a moment and give us a five-star review to help other people find these amazing stories. And there are so many you can sink your teeth into. We also love hearing from you, so if you have a show topic you want me to cover, email me at craig at canadaehx.com or stop by my website and social media. I'll include all of those links in the show notes. 